Excellent. Well, in a sense, it's not really a new series. We're, we're, we're kind of doing the second part of um, a series we really began last year and then had a short hiatus through the book of Malachi and then obviously our Christmas series. But we're looking at the church. So in our first segment, we looked at what we saw the biblical theology of the church, looking at the Bible, looking right from the beginning of Genesis and see how the shell of the church was found right from the very beginning and then tracing that right through to obviously Revelation and seeing how the church develops through families, through Israel as a nation, through the whole world now being part of or the whole world having access to being part of that church. So this part now is going to be focused on the doctrines of what the church is, the doctrines of what do we do? So we are the church and now, so what does that look like? How do we do it? Are we doing it correctly? You know, um, what are the fundaments? What's the minimum? When, what are the excesses? All those types of things we're going to be looking at. And so I want to begin in, and we're going to begin in today looking at what the life of the church is. What, what's the fundaments of it? What does that ought to look like? And we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, a very short chapter, very short excerpt from there. And then we're going to kind of unpack that and look at four key principles of what makes a church. So we are, let me also kind of say, we're, so we're, we're not really inventing the wheel here. We, we, we are using this book, the church, quite literally. We are taking every chapter and we've been preaching it so far. So I would encourage you to get this because there are questions at the back of it which are good and important for answers. So questions for you to look at the church, our, where we are, and say, how, are we doing this? How we, how, are we applying this? And also to look at yourself. So it's a great study book, and I would encourage you to grab a copy. Uh, it's called um, The Message of the Church. It's a, from the BST series, The Bible Speaks Today. And um, it's by Chris Green, my old teacher on, you know, ecclesiology. So we are so thankful that he's written this book. Um, because in a sense, he unpacks so much of what we learn and um, enables to kind of grow and improve on it. So let me begin by praying. And um, then we'll just jump in from there. Or actually, let's read and then we'll pray. So I want to start the... the we're going to be in Acts 2, and we really, our focus is going to be on verses 42 to 47, but I want to jump a little bit back to give us a little bit of a context so we can run in and understand what we're dealing with, and, and I want to start at verse 37. So Acts 2, the, the greater portion of this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He preaches, and all these um, Jewish people are in the are in um, Jewish diaspora are in Jerusalem, um, celebrating the feast of Pentecost. They hear um, the message um, in all various languages, and then Peter goes out and he preaches this great evangelistic message, and people are drawn into the church. And we start at verse thirty-seven as they are now responding to that message. 
So follow me. I'll be reading in the ESV, but following whatever translation you have. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, fellowship, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to um, again be here um, as your church, Lord, learning what it is to be your church. And Father, we are so thankful that again, you know, we, are, we take this time as an opportunity, Father, to be um, encouraged or even rebuked, Lord, what it, as, as it, it may be, so that, Lord, we may do this, what we do here better, to be faithful, Lord God, in our generation there, Father, to um, keep the legacy of the church going. And Lord, we know that it's not merely by our strength, but Lord God, by your strength. So Lord, again, help us in whatever way, dear Lord, you can um, to not resist, dear Lord Father, what it is you would have us to do. So Lord, especially God, as it, would, as it said, not to resist the Spirit of God who works amongst us, Lord. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word and reap, dear Lord God, good things. So that, Father, from 2023 beyond, dear Lord God, we can do great exploits for you. And this is our hope and our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got to be honest with you. Um, it is with great nostalgia I look at Acts 2, because from the point when I became a, a, a believer... I, I always looked at this passage and said, wow, I would love to be in a church like this, to be there, to be in that setting, to, that, you know, that sense of, I guess, what I would call authenticity. And I, I, I had that sincere longing and wanted the church to be that, wherever I was, to be that. But the shame is that when we really think about it, Whenever we see something like this emulated in our modern or contemporary setting, it tends to look like the worst kinds of cult. 
people being away together and, you know, um, in some setting, some remote setting more often. And more often it is a cult. And they kind of, you know, no doubt look to texts like this and, and appeal to that's the way to do it. But obviously we know better. The truth is, is that I do see a bit of this. And this is me being a bit honest and, and, and kind of letting you in on a secret aspect of myself. I love new plant churches. And when, especially more recently when I've gone to teach at new plant churches and you see the richness of that and everybody's like going, where are we going after? We're going to your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're gonna... I love that. I absolutely love it. I remember a time when my early experiences of church were just like that. Going to someone's house after church and not going back home to Tuesday. <laughs> Quite literally. Just in fellowship and, and, and enjoying that. And I, I could easily, and this is me admitting a secret thing that I know I wouldn't do, but I can trust you. I could easily church hop church plants. And just at that point when it all starts to formalize and become all straight-jacketed, I'll just leave and go and find another one. Just because I want to capture what I see here in Acts 2. See, that's the punishment of God, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you dare do that, Richard. <laughs> So I can sense in some ways that some people identified with that, that desire to be in an authentic church, an authentic fellowship, unrestrained. But we didn't despair. We can capture the essence of what we see in here and at the same time, accept the fact that we don't live in the unique times that they did. And be able to appreciate what God has created for us here. I think one of the things that I kind of take from this is the whole idea of fluid fellowship. My own term. But I just, it's my way of describing the church community that flows together beyond the organized meetings into the informal gatherings that seem to enshrine, to, to enshrine us as a definable community. It's quite a lot, but it, it's, it's what happens beyond the prayer meetings. It's what happens beyond our Sunday service. It's what happens beyond our, that, in a sense, I typify as fluid fellowship. It's the coffee meetups. It's the, the, the dinner dates, the gathering around. It's the meeting up and going to the gym together. It's all those little things. And the more of it we have and the more definable it is that these guys love each other. These guys are a really solid community. You can see the outline of that community. It's something I think we need to strive for. In many ways, it just looks like a big friendship group. 
in which our common interest in worshipping the triune God keeps bringing us together. What I personally believe to be the divider of these communities is when self-interest creeps in. There is always that thing that cuts in there and all of a sudden now we become distracted, become unavailable, and then it cuts across that. And then one person drifts, another person drifts, and then it's not like how it used to be. But again, even then, as I'll unpack a little bit more, we needn't be worried about that either because God is indeed building his church. One of the things I think also is quite damaging to this idea of fluid fellowship is as people start to test the friendships in the community. And for example, we get married to one another. We may start a business together. In whichever way we spend more time together, we start to realize, as, um, as Rob often says, to live with me, to, sit, to be with me, kind of out here in the open is one thing, but to live with me is another. And so we suddenly realize that as you rub up against one another, we find things that we don't like. And then we suddenly think maybe really we're not the friends we, we thought we were. Maybe we're not as close as we used to be. While we are singing and listening to the word and eating together, we tend to be suitably distracted from ourselves. But it is the application where our personal understanding will come into conflict. You know, so when we're doing things together, that tends to be helpful because it takes the focus off ourselves. But then when we lose that, that's when the strife comes in. So often, though these beliefs do not come to the surface until they come into conflict with different understandings of the same thing. So we can all sit together and we're, we're hearing the word, we're singing the songs, but then when we come and we start to unpack what that looks like in each other's lives, we all say something quite different. Well, I actually took away this. And, I, and then that in itself becomes one of those issues. You know, one of my contentions is that, you know, beyond that which, you know, is fundamental to what it means to be a church, I think those differences can often be healthy and ought to be there and ought to create tensions between us because, in a sense, the church needs that. It needs those different views to come together. And it's not about, well, I want to just go and find everybody who thinks and feels the same way I do. You know, and then create a church, you know, a praying church, a singing church, a whatever it might be, a word church. Because we're all on the same page. And then you have none of that diversity to help you. In our contemporary setting, as I've already said, we're coming to terms with how we should be doing church now. I think one of the things we can say in the wake of the COVID pandemic, we are trying to figure out how we can rebuild the ministry to suit a new situation. 
Here we have had an opportunity, much like the first Israelites when they had come back from exile to Babylon. And that's why we did that, ser that series in Ezra and Nehemiah. What does it look like to come back and rebuild, as it were, and reestablish that which God had already there and we feel has, has suffered devastating setbacks? One of the issues of note for the prophets living at the time of the um, exile, going back to Israel, was that, that, that the temple should take precedent in being rebuilt over their own homes. That can seem like a really harsh thing. But when you really think about God's movement, especially as we look back at the, 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 the biblical theology, the first thing when Moses took the children of Israel out, before they even set foot in the promised land, they built the temple. Worship comes first. The establishment of our worship life ought to precede even our own comfort. And I think that's a principle is established throughout the Bible. And it's one of those things that we also, I think, need to take in mind when we think about how do we do what we see in Acts 2. So what do we see in Acts 2? Well, from our text today, we're going to be looking at four fundamental principles that Luke notes were key to the church's growth. And I believe they are fundamental to what a healthy church ought to look like today. With these things in place, I believe God can move mountains amongst us. So let's look at the first thing. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's number one. In the first century, this would have, would have initially come in the form of the Bible. Would not have come in the form of the Bible that we have today. So this would have been the preached word and any letters that eventually would be written to the church. So ultimately, this was an oral administration of the, of, of the word of God. And to some extent, today we can sometimes think that, well, I have that access to the apostles' teaching because I have my Bible. And to some extent, you'll be correct. But one of the, the things I would probably stress, that I, I mean, is that we need the word preached to us. Rather than just merely taking a reading and feeling like, well, I'm blessed. And, you know, again, this is this is to take the strain from saying that I can do this at home. Because as we'll see, these things need to be done in community. And so the word preached is as needful for us in our present situation as it was in the ancient world that we read it. And we don't, in a sense, move on from that and say, well, we have the technology to do it in a way that suits me now because my life is busy. The word preached is important. P 
For this reason, we have to assume that the devotion to the apostles' teaching or doctrine meant that they were attentive to the preached word, as we need to be today, and its application. Most, if not all of us, can identify with the zeal for the word in the early years of our Christian life. It is natural for zeal to call, though. And so none of, I mean, most, if not all of us, can, can really identify with that, that point where at our first being called to Lord, our, that eagerness to just take in the word, to devour. I want everything. When's the next prayer meeting? Oh, can't we just do another one now? And we all know that zeal calls, don't we? And before we know it, we're not quite as eager as other things come in and take that, t- that place and that time from us. But we shouldn't allow that commitment to vanish completely. In a sense, it may not mean that we are consuming in the quantities that we're used to. But we do need to consume consistently and know the word of God. The challenge for all believers is the renewing of their mind. And this is why I believe we need the, the, the doctrines, the, the reading of the word. Because Paul lays that challenge to us, doesn't he? In Romans 12, 1 and 2. The renewing of our minds to new realities of the kingdom of God. Because in a sense, what we have done as we come, by becoming believers is that we have now come into a new kingdom. Our mind needs to be bathed in the values of the new kingdom if it is going to be able to move from the values of the old to the new. You know, one of the things you might do as you go to another land, maybe as you think about emigrating, is that you might want to learn the laws that you'll be under. There's no point, as it were, moving to France thinking that we're going, to use, we're going to continue on UK law. And there is that, that urgency, as it were, to kind of realize that even though the kingdom is in that now and not yet actual phase, we need to actually figure out, well, what are the new principles I'm living for? One of the things we were looking at even this week in Colossians, and I just want to maybe quote this to us now, as a reminder, in Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, an obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Therefore, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. How do we think that knowledge after the, you know, that knowledge is going to come to us, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator? Maybe we envision maybe something like the matrix and being plugged into a machine that just kind of downloads and 
like Neo, I know Kung Fu, like that. And I think maybe sometimes we do think that way, that knowledge will come. But the reality is, is that Kung Fu, Chinese for hard work, only comes by doing hard work. And that's the reality that we have to match up to, is that ultimately we need to put in the hard work. So if we are going to stand any chance of renewing our minds, we're going to need to put in some serious commitment into learning <laughs> new tricks for old dogs. It's worth doing an inventory of how your time is currently divided up and consider how much of your time is given to the Word of God. It's a, it's a worthwhile exercise, year by year. Every year consists of 8,760 hours. How many of these hours last year were you engaged in learning more about the Word of God, and how does that compare to everything else that keeps you occupied? When all has been accounted for, is it worthy of being labeled as something you are devoted to? What does devoted to look like? And again, it's something I do encourage you to do. We must not be fooled. Our minds will be dedicated in such a some form of teaching. In other words, we are learning, passively or actively. The challenge I give to us all is to allow the Word of God to speak into all aspects of our lives and not relegate it to being an ancient text which cannot prepare me for the modern world I currently live in. Books like Ecclesiastes are so dynamic in being able to rightly comprehend the issues of the human heart and its labor to make sense of the world, seemingly, even though it is seemingly out of sync with life, that books like Ecclesiastes remind us, man, this is me. These are my struggles. Or even books like Revelation, a, re a book that is written so dynamically that it speaks not only to churches throughout the Turkish church, but speaks to church throughout the ages and around the world. And we shouldn't, and we shouldn't limit the, the, the ability of the Bible to be able to speak dynamically to where we are right now. Even though we might say, well, it can't answer the question of, is it all right for me to be a smoker? Is it all right for me to have a tattoo? The Bible judges on a deeper level and examines your heart and that heart before God. And in that sense, that's what we have in common with the ancient world, is that we all have that same human struggle, no matter how much technology we have. Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter Verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. He says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, see that word there, knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very pr great promises so that through them 
you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So God has provided everything in his word so that we can live a godly life. If we seek the knowledge. But that's not all Peter has to say about scripture and its application. In, verse, in the same chapter, verses 19 to 21, he also reminds us that this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the, da- the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever produced by, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this last passage comes with a correction to any intent that I may have to use scripture in a manner that glorifies me as opposed to God. They were written for God's benefit for us to grow and be mature. But it's also to give us a lamp in a dark place. It assumes the world is dark and the knowledge within it will not help you to have the knowledge of God. And therefore we must pay attention to it. Moving on to the second fundament. And the fellowship. You know, we have to start and and, and first understand the history behind Acts 2 is that the Jews who converted to the Christian faith would often find themselves outside their community. I think that's important to know why fellowship becomes so important. If life was going to continue with any normality, then they would need to be committed to the new community of the believers because the old community was shut off from them. More often than not, they would be considered dead by families who stayed faithful to the Jewish faith. And so this aspect of fellowship was, to some extent, necessary because they needed to see some consistency. It's a terrible thing to be alone in the world with everybody around you, like living in a city, but having no one close to you. This is something we cannot really appreciate in our current context because becoming a Christian doesn't usually incite the rejection of our friends and family. They may snigger a little bit, but not much else. No one gets thrown out of their homes. We know it's different, obviously, for people, especially of the Islamic faith. But traditionally today, we we don't lose our community when we become Christians. This means that one of the challenges in our modern church is making room for fellowship in what is an already full social life that incorporates family, friends, and work colleagues. Much like our need to be invested in the word, if we are to grow spiritually, we will also need to be in a godly company. If we are going to develop godly habits, we need that godly company. So I think that, again, is a genuine challenge. If, in a sense, we don't lose our community when we become Christians, then to some extent, we're already loaded. I've got birthdays, I've got, um, you know, um, work drinks, I've got dinner parties. All those things are already there. And then 
all of a sudden now, how am I going to make room for the church and fellowship? It's a modern problem, isn't it? And it's something that we have to take seriously as we become Christians. How am I going to make room for fellowship to develop godly habits? Paul has um, a couple of things to say about this. is the Apostle Paul, particularly in the, the letter to the Corinthians. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 to 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Especially as we think about some of those families and friends and, and even work colleagues we hang out with who have no appreciation for Christianity. Like you said, they won't reject you. That's you. But we can be in their company in such a way that it chips away. And they edge doubts in. And before you know it, we just want to fit in. And we say less and less about the truth that awoken us to Christ. And we're losing our witness, if ever we had it. Paul also reminds us again in um, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what part partnership has, un has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. So Paul even believes there are good reasons to restrict access to people who are not going to be building us up in the faith. And to some extent, it should definitely not be to the neglect of the family of God. The family of God is still central and should be central to your life if you are a believer. And so there are good reasons maybe why we would say, I can't make a family or a friend's gathering for the sake of fellowship with the saints. Again, as I said at the beginning, because it creates that clear delineation of a community. No, I've got to be with, with my church family today. And people understand that and begin to appreciate that. Though we are not compelled to cut off completely from non-believing families, because again, that's not what I'm saying. And friends, we are warned to be on guard to the negative influence of their anti-God worldview. And we need to take that seriously. Just because they are not antagonistic directly, they do have an anti-God worldview. This 
This may seem like an excessive thing to say, especially when they are not outwardly hostile to our faith, but it is the subtle slope of disbelief that can rub off. If we are not actively sharing our faith with them, then they have the opportunity to share theirs with us. I'll let you think on that. Considering that quantity of fellowship may be a challenge for us, we must not let that discourage us from seeking the quality of it. The type of fellowship we need has to be more than the casual catch-up after church, but the kind that allows us to be open and honest with one another. James gives us an understanding of the kind of fellowship we need in James 2, 14 to 17. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the needs, giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not work, is dead. Good fellowship needs to be worked out. And therefore will cost us. It's one of the things we see later on in the chapter, isn't it, about them giving the, the resources in. And one of those things about, I said at the beginning of the series, where we looked at that passage of the sheep and the goats. And then the Lord comes at the end and says, well, I'm rewarding you because when I needed food, you fed me. When I needed a drink, you gave me something to drink. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. Good fellowship costs. It costs us time. It costs us money. It costs us resources. And what it means to be a part of that work, of a part of good quality fellowship is that we know those needs exist amongst us. We make the time to know it and to minister to it. We do pray about it, but we also act on it if it is within our power to do so. The early church knew the needs of their fellow believers and they were thus able to help them out of their own resources. And, and so it should continue even to this day. The next fundament is to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is not merely referring to the Lord's Supper as we know it in our modern setting, but is a reference to an actual meal in which the communion would be shared at some point. This is much like what we see in the upper room when Jesus institutes the communion with his disciples as they partake in the Passover meal. Taking time like this is actually, to actually eat together gives us time to spend quality time to get to know each other. Fellowship is certainly made easier as the body is being ministered to. You know, one of the things we, we know that Jesus done miracles of, of feeding people when he was on lengthy teaching, um, teaching ministry, because he knew that 
it's one thing to teach people, but to keep the body up in order to hear it as well was important. And he also considered the fact that they needed to get back home. And that was a lengthy journey. That wasn't obviously, oh, I'm just popping down back down there. That would be, I need to walk back home. And to be considerate of that. But one of the things I realized that the breaking of bread here is, is mentioned, not just for the sake of the communion, which obviously it does point towards in some respect. The breaking of bread together means that we have to spend quality time. And ought to, again, maybe give us ideas about how we can continually share communion more than often than we, we do. The opportunity maybe at a dinner party to then say, let's remember the Lord even as we've eaten this food. You know, nothing stops you. Take a bit of the bread or the breadsticks. Bam, here, here. Wine or the grape juice. Let's drink to the Lord and remember him. What a transformation that will make to so many of our dinner parties, right? Just to remember the Lord. To remember it even in, in those times and, and how that solidifies your identity from the casual, or even just to do it with our families. Imagine how that will lift us up. And bring the church nearer to us. The breaking of bread and having these opportunities means that we have quality time to get to know each other as well. And have those, as it were, rubbings. You're Arminiast. You're Calvinist. <laughs> oh, Lord. Those of us who are of us who are involved in helps ministry, you know, those who serve the, the teas, the coffees, and the food, are providing a vital opportunity to keep people in place so that quality fellowship can happen. You know, again, we start to see how vital that ministry is. But even then, there is a balance, isn't it? We also need to remember that we need to balance this to also take time to join in with the fellowship as stated in Luke's gospel. I won't read it, but again, in Luke 10, 38 to 42, Martha is reminded that, you know, it's great to serve the food. We need that. But come and sit down as well. Be a part of it as well. And so often what I find with, especially the mothers of the church, is that they can be so busy serving, they don't get, remember to get, be a part of it. Put down plates. Don't worry. If anybody needs to warm up anything, they find the microwave. Come and sit and enjoy. So let's remember Martha and Mary and, her, and Mary choosing that good portion. And finally, the prayers. The fourth and final thing that makes up the life of the church is prayer. The unity that comes through praying together cannot be underestimated. If we want to build up the credentials to speak into people's lives, then we need to be praying for them. And I mean this sincerely. So often people want to, you know, get into confrontations with people, those who are confrontational, but never have taken the time to pray for that person, even as they think about confronting them about an issue they have. 
and they lay no foundation of prayer. We will find that temper will certainly call if we are praying for somebody. Because I believe it is nigh impossible to be genuinely praying to the Lord for somebody and to still hold that person in any kind of contempt. It means that our tempers will call and we can approach people in love. Many experienced churchmen have rightly stated, and church women, have rightly stated that the strength of a church is not merely determined on a Sunday gathering, but at the prayer meeting. That's the engine. And often we don't see it. But that's the engine of the church. It's foundation, it's, a, it's ability to evangelize and to attract believers is establishing that layer of prayer. The truth of developing a good prayer life, you know, when you read through It is also through that fellowship, I believe, that we understand how best to pray for people. In other words, it's not often helpful when we, have, we know nothing of somebody and then take up the challenge to pray for them. But as we think about a conversation that we may have, maybe they haven't even explicitly asked you to pray, but you believe that you need to pray for that person because there was something that led you to believe that. I need to reach out to the, to the Lord for, on behalf of that person. Maybe you know they've got a difficult week ahead. Maybe they told you that they had an argument with their husband or their wife or one of their friends. And you just want to reach out and pray for them. And again, it's so important that fellowship becomes a vital place of gathering intel, so to speak, for our prayer lives. When you read through the book of Acts, you find that the apostles and believers are constantly praying. And this is one of the things that Chris points out in his book. As needs and situation arose, they committed it to prayer. The truth of developing a good prayer life is found in the details like this. We may discover that our commitment to prayer is not much different to how we make use of a special suit or dress by only bringing it out for special occasions. Our ability to give thanks to God for new days, meals, safe journeys, when we come together and when we leave each other, are small but vital steps in building up our prayer life corporately and individually. You know, so often we, 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 we try to take out the big chunk and, you know, I, I'm going to try and do the one-hour prayer in the morning thing and, and we all know that's a struggle. Let's all be honest with ourselves. But what we can do is, what we find as, 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 you, as we're led through the book is that when you trace through there, they pray for everything. And our prayer lives will develop through praying in the details of our lives. I wake up in the morning, let's give thanks. I'm eating my breakfast, I'm eating my lunch, let's give thanks. 
I'm about to journey to work. Let's give thanks, Lord. Bless and keep me, Lord. Any opportunity you get to use me, let that be done. Harder to have those arguments with other commuters, right? <laughs> when you've already prayed for them. <laughs> it's those little details that will help our prayer life. We come together. Oh, thank you, Lord, for my brother, my sister. Use this time that we get together. Blah, blah, blah. As we leave, Lord, bless and keep them. All the things that we've, we've, we've talked about, we commit to you. You're developing a prayer life. And all of a sudden, you start to see the psalmist is not nuts when he says, pray without ceasing. Because your whole life is a prayer. So you're thinking about, Lord, what are we doing next? One of the things that this leads off is into the growth of the church, numerically. And this is one of the things that we ought to be considering as well as we think about why these, five, these four fundaments, because in a sense, Luke is noting how these were things. I mean, and Luke is not writing, you know, it's not... One of the things you've got to appreciate about Luke, Luke was there for so much of the church life. At the latter end of Paul's life, we believe he testifies that only Luke is with me at the moment. Many people have moved on and even left the faith. And so Luke, when he writes these things about the church growth, he kind of identifies that wherever he has seen the church, and remember, he's followed Paul around the world, around the Roman world. He's noting that these things seem to be in place that help the church to grow. So we can't take lightly that he adds this at the end of his text, having pointed out these particular four things. We should expect the kingdom to grow. Growth is natural. Luke 9, 35 to 38, this I will read. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As more of us are involved in, in being brought up in the word, knowing, our, knowing what we stand for as Christians, as more of us are, are available for fellowship, especially to talk beyond our own friendship groups, as more of us are able to, again, share meals with people, whether that's in our homes or out in restaurants or whatnot, as more of us are available for that quality fellowship, as more of us are committed ourselves to prayer, is going to create more opportunity for those people to find a basis in our own church communities because they feel safe there. They feel like there's enough mature people around them that they can grow. They see that the principles are there and God is able to entrust them to us. 
Because don't get me wrong, it is not because we've read the book on how to develop a, a strong and healthy church. God adds that increase. It's God who's committing them. It's God who's giving that person that release and says, you know, you need to settle here. You need to be that. It's the Spirit of God who ultimately is working on people's hearts. And it's the Spirit of God who looks at our lives and he says, I, I, I can trust these people to come and feel safe in your church community. God will be that final witness for them as they think, should I go? This is the reason why these things need to be in place. But this is the reason why I think we need these fundamentals in place before we think about any other programs to add on top of them. We really need our energy focused in these areas. And then, and only then, build other ministries, para-ministries, to reach out to others. Because in a sense, the root is there. The last thing we want is a loads of para-ministries that feel real no connection ultimately to the church and feel no indebtedness to what happens here, but feel like they're on their own. They're like little Rambos going out on their own, but realize that actually the strength of the church has enabled them to do what they do. And as we develop those things here, it's, it's important. One of the things to be careful of as well, especially as we look at this passage, is signs and wonders. We should not be distracted from these fundamentals by thinking that it is only in the atmosphere of signs and wonders we will attract new believers. Again, so many people get caught up in this. It's, it's when they see the power of God that people will ultimately be transformed. And I no doubt anyone who's been around, especially in the charismatic movement, are aware that this is, an, this is one of the things they lay down has been fundamental for church growth, even though they would not necessarily deny all those other things, like fellowship and breaking the bread. It's not, it's not that they would deny this, but they would say that the power of God will make the difference. But we have to appreciate the uniqueness of the time. Any new dispensation, any new covenant is normally marked by signs and wonders. Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea, bringing the, 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 the Israelites into there, that signs and wonders was there to, to, to bring attention to the message of God through Moses. And the same thing with Jesus and the apostles is that God is dragging attention to these people and so the concentrations of signs and wonders are there to instill, listen to this person. Something you need to consider that if we, are, if we purport that signs and wonders need to continue to happen in the frequency we see within the context of the word, then one of the things that if God truly did work like that, all these other people, Moses and Jesus, will be lost in the milieu of all these signs and wonders. They wouldn't look unique anymore. And that's one thing you need to consider. 
their uniqueness will be lost. Because if every time I wanted to cross the Red Sea and I said, Lord, just, just part the Red Sea and we walk across, the, 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 the miracle of what happened at the time of Moses is lost. The uniqueness of what God was doing is lost. And the same thing with Jesus. If his uniqueness and the apostles' uniqueness is lost, all of a sudden we'd be like, well, we really, why are we listening to the old, a, a two or thousand years? We're doing this stuff like, like casual now. And then, don't be surprised we stop reading our Bibles because it's all out here. It's all happening. And again, the wisdom of God knows that this is the reason why these things don't happen day to day the way that people think it should. So that the uniqueness of the time, we can always come back and say, let's look at the time where God put his, his, his thumbprint on history and said, look at what I'm doing. And look at what I'm sandwiched. We are always put in that position of looking backwards and looking forwards and never at ourselves. There's also the, a similar danger of thinking that there is things in which we can do in order to put in place. And I think an opposite danger to the signs and wonders is professionalism as well. And that entering into the church and this whole idea that if we can make it entertaining enough, if we can spruce it up enough, that will, in a sense, become a sign and a wonder that will entice people into the church. So there's a lot of people that are not moved by that. And but at the same time, I'm quite captivated with this whole idea that... Again, this is not saying that we, shan't, we should not do things excellently. I've put in the time to make sure I write this so that you can understand it. So even what I'm doing is to a degree of professionalism. But I'm not relying on professionalism in order to make this connect with you. I'm praying that the Lord will connect this with you. And that's what we're relying on. And they're not our professional programs. So that is something we need to be careful of. So what's the application? How do we land this? A signs of a healthy church will have all these features, as we already have discussed. If they are to function in daily life, and this is what the life of the church needs to look like, a healthy opportunity to come and hear the preached word and to learn the word of God, and we've got those things in place. We have a teaching team here, we have um, a, a regular Bible study. Needs to be probably a little bit regular for some, more regular. But we have it to help you grow. We need fellowship. We're endeavoring, we're getting there. We're doing more so, in, you know, especially in a post lockdown thing, we're, we are getting there. And we have that opportunity today, don't we? And looking forward to that. And the breaking of bread. And in the midst of the breaking of that bread, to take communion. And we have prayer meeting. Taking the long view of things, we can mean that we can lose some of the details of someone having a, to commit to, these, to doing these things. In other words, as we look at the text, we, we see these things happening, but we don't see the people that are doing them. That's the long view. And so, yeah, 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 we do, that's it. But then this is the point where the finger now starts to come and says, 
out of the text and says, are you doing this? That's what applications are for. We can easily make this about appreciating these features where we find them as opposed to having them incorporated into our own lives. Hence, we appreciate being in a church that has a strong and faithful preaching and teaching ministry because it releases us of having to dig deep ourselves into our own studies. We're enjoying fellowship with those we know well, but never really taking the time to know someone we are not too sure about. We also appreciate the refreshments, but only because it sets us up nicely for our next engagement. And thus miss the opportunity to put your feet up and enjoy the community of God. Are we happy to know that there is a prayer meeting? Oh, they have a prayer meeting. Oh, that's great. Hmm. <laughs> and it's a bit like discovering that you've got your life jacket next to your seat as you go on your boat journey. <laughs> oh, we got it. <laughs> Hope I never need it. <laughs> and so often it is, isn't it? We can end up drawing for the prayer meeting when our life's in crisis. It's great to have you there. But better to have you weekly. It's one thing to be aware that the healthy church needs these things and another thing to know my need to be involved in them. You know, we can be seeking the right church, isn't it? And Oh, I'm looking to the, the place where I, I have all these nice resources to be able to rely upon but not really fully take on board that this is about me. As I said, we need to take ourselves from that long view of Scripture and start to get ourselves involved in the details of what that looks like in our own lives. Let's apply well. Let me end with 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.